Have you tried Music to Code by yet? Well, why not? Here's a comment Joe left on the website. This is also great music to mow by. I like listening to music while doing yard work to help the monotony of it seem less tedious. This past summer, I started listening to these tracks while doing yard work, and they worked great! I could let the music play in the background without focusing on it, and it seemed to help me concentrate on getting through my tasks. Thanks, Joe. And you know, now you can download the entire 13-track collection. That's over five and a half hours of music to code by for only 39 bucks. Check it out at musictocodeby.net. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. Here for your geeky .NET DevOpsy goodness today. <laughs> How are you, man? I'm good. I'm excited to have uh, Nicole and Jez on the show. Nicole was on Run As last year, so uh, it's the first time you're going to get to talk to her. Hey, what have you been doing over on Run As Radio lately? Uh, you know, we've been doing a lot of DevOps stuff because it's been, April has been like a DevOps month. Mm. And, uh, and of course, lots of security concerns too. You know, the yeah. breach the breach rate is out of control. I'm going to bring Troy Hunt back on to .NET Rocks to scare us some more too. Yeah, if they can keep him off CNN and the BBC, what's up with that guy? He's like everywhere. <laughs> he, is, he? he is everywhere. It's The breaches are coming so fast and furious these days, it's almost impossible to keep track. I think he does more good just by giving everybody that calm Aussie accent, you know, it just like soothes them. So that's, that's his superpower, I think. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> yeah. All right. Let's roll the music for Better Know a Framework. Awesome. All right, dude, what do you got? Have you heard of Google App Maker? No. I haven't either. I, I don't know how new this is or if I've just had my head under a rock, but, uh, this is, uh, what is this, show 1436? Mm -hmm. So if you go to 1436.pwop.me, um, this is just a Google App Maker. So what it is, is a low-code application development tool, in their own words, that lets your organization build and deploy custom apps easily and securely on the same platform that powers G Suite. You know, Google Suite, all their, all their apps. So uh, you can create new data, import the data you already have, store it in Drive or Google Cloud Platform. There's a drag-and-drop UI editor with built-in templates, uh, and it makes it easy for anyone to build sophisticated user interfaces. And then you can, with one click, publish, uh, deploy it to the entire company. No servers, admins, or provisioning required. So an app development platform for the cloud. There it is. I haven't seen it myself, but apparently it's new because... Um, if you are a G Suite business customer, you can ask uh, your domain admin to apply for early access. So it must be really new. Interesting. Yeah, it's a, it must be brand new stuff. Yeah. So I'm, you know, I have a Google account and Google Drive and all that stuff. So I'm, I'd be interested to see how how well it does. I'll, I'll be checking it out for sure. It reminds me of uh, Microsoft's Power Apps tool too, right? Like yeah. I think everybody's trying to get a way to build apps into the cloud with the least amount of pain and, and time. Agreed. And uh, that's good. That's good for everybody. Even if you don't use it, it sort of pushes on the traditional tool sets to sort of up their game and make some higher level abstractions. Absolutely. Yeah. So who's talking to us, buddy? Grabbed a comment off of show 1429, the one we did with Stephen Bohr just a few weeks ago, yeah. talking about Visual Studio Team Services and uh, building that integration pipeline and all that good stuff and how you instrument that. And uh, Inman Maith said, hey, this was a great show. I really enjoyed the commentary on code reviewing. I'm still fairly new to the development scene. And one thing that has always escaped me is the question, who should code review this? Mm. I agree that there are often some superheroes who can digest and understand any piece of code in a system that relates and provide very good intelligent feedback. However, they are, at least where I work, often snowed under with their own work and even other people's codes to review. Mm. The, the problem I personally run into often is that I'm asked to code review code related to systems I have no experience developing for. In these yeah. cases, should I push back and suggest another person do the code review, or should I jump in and learn while running the risk of messing things up and doing a disservice to the developer asking for the review? 
Yeah. Uh, you know, I think coming in not knowing a lot about that particular project is going to help you in math It because you ask good questions then. When you're really familiar with a piece of code, you're going to skip over things that might be more important to take a look at during a code review. So, you know, don't take your inexperience with certain areas to be a, an issue. Make yeah. the, ask those hard questions and sort of work your way through. If you can't understand it, there may be a problem there. You know, there's actually an advantage to having to learn the process of teaching that will clarify the code. And that's the whole point of a code review. That's right. Yeah. So, Inam, thank you so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or via any of your social media, because we publish every show to Facebook and Google+. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a mug. And definitely follow us on Twitter. He's at Rich Campbell. I'm at Carl Franklin. Send us a tweet. They humble us. Ah, there you go. <laughs> Speaking of humble, Jez Humble is the co-author of the DevOps Handbook, Lean Enterprise, and the Jolt Award-winning Continuous Delivery. He has spent his career tinkering with code, infrastructure, and product development in companies of varying sizes across three continents, most recently working for the U.S. federal government at 18F. He's currently researching how to build high-performing teams at his startup DevOps Research and Assessment, LLC, and teaching at UC Berkeley. And Nicole Forsgren is the co-founder, CEO, and chief scientist at Dora. That's DevOps Research and Assessment, also with Jez. Uh, she's best known for her work as the lead investigator on the State of DevOps Reports. She has a PhD in Management Information Systems. Wow, impressive. And uses her science for DevOps good. Welcome, Jez. Welcome, Nicole. Thanks very much for having us on. It's a pleasure to be here again. Thanks so much. Good to be here. Wow. A PhD in management information systems. You must really like this stuff. <laughs> I do. Yeah. I get super excited. That's awesome. Well, and, and I'm aware, partly because I interviewed uh, Nicole on uh, Run As a while ago, but as someone who's followed the DevOps story very closely, I noticed the the aspect of the reporting that came out every year, that sort of state of DevOps, which you've done for many years now. It changed about a year or two ago. It got a lot more detailed. And I think I blame you for that, Nicole. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, that's all my fault. And it's, you know what? It's about four years ago now. I, I, wow. I'd like to say I invited myself onto the team. I, I sort of crashed that party. Um, and it, it got a lot more rigorous, right? Because I wanted to be able to talk about things like uh, prediction, right? So, so mm. what types of things, what types of technical capabilities actually drive performance improvement in terms of uh, software development and delivery performance and capability and organizational performance, things like profitability, productivity, and market share. So it's it's been a fantastic, fantastic ride. Well, I think it's a very challenging stuff to measure too. Like, how do you know that your software has had that much impact on an organization or more relevantly, the DevOps practice has? Right. So, well, and when we do that, we have to kind of take that in steps and take that in pieces, right? So how do you measure it? Um, we have to take that a piece at a time, right? Mm -hmm. So how do you, how do you measure it? And then how do you understand those measures and how they play a role and how do they have an impact in the right way? So it's, it's been kind of a fun project over these several years, uh, working with, uh, Jez here on the call and also Gene Kim and the team at Puppet. But, but also some spectacular results. I mean, we, we actually have shown that DevOps practices impacts IT performance. IT performance impacts organizational performance. We have a, a standardized way to measure IT performance that we've shown year after year um, actually works. It's valid. It's statistically valid. And we know which practices and capabilities uh, lead to better IT performance. So I think, you know, the reason it's been going on all these years is because it's, it's actually been spectacularly successful. And, uh, I'm, I'm very proud and happy with, with the work we've been able to do on this. Right. Well, and I think the other thing that's really interesting and insightful and, and fun is that we've been able to show a few different things. First is that, you know, IT performance, that thing that, so what we call IT performance, but really is more broad. You know, sometimes people say, oh, IT, it's not just IT performance. It's your ability to develop and deliver software with both speed and stability. 
Hmm. We found now over several years, it really is a key differentiator and key value driver for all organizations. It's what drives profitability, productivity, market share, but also um, it, it works not just for um, for-profit organizations. It works for government. It works for nonprofit. It works for organizations of all types, all sizes, um, all industry verticals all around the world. Including highly regulated companies, I mean, um, mm. yes. financial companies, the federal government. Because, um, you know, I'm sure you've all and people listening have experienced this. It's like you talk about something and then someone pops up and says, well, that sounds great, but that, that won't work at my company. Right. Because we're special. Yeah, yeah, we're a special snowflake and we're different. And, and you know, the, the data is very clear. You know, it does work everywhere. I've just spent the last year um, up till February this year working at the U.S. federal government. And we were able to apply these exact techniques um, for federal government systems, which is the most regulated domain I've ever worked in. I mean, there's through 325 controls, uh, infosec controls you need to implement for a, for a medium impact federal government system. And every time that you hear somebody say that it won't work at my company, you know they're thinking about one person or two people <laughs> that have veto power that uh, that are going to put the kibosh on it. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and and I mean, we do our work with Dora now, which is you know an assessment tool to help you drive performance impacts. We've we've now worked in partnership with MITRE at the federal government, and we've been able to, to implement this in the government. We have over twenty three thousand data points around the world. We can use this everywhere. And the other thing that's interesting that Jez was just alluding to a minute ago, we have these statistics. And the thing that's absolutely fascinating is that our statistics have proven to be not just predictive over time, but also stable, right? We've, we have seen these statistics be so stable over time. And I think that's, that's the other thing that is so fascinating is that, you know, we see this be so predictive so important and and so stable right our findings are stable and they're sound mm. over time hmm. and and i think that's honestly that's why i love what i do is that we've been able to help so many companies and so many industries see what the real value is of of these devops practices right we know which capabilities are important and and we can help drive performance improvements and really drive value across so many industries and so many verticals. So it's not, you know, the, the original dev, anti-DevOps argument was it's only for special unicorns, for the best high-tech companies with the best teams. That's the only way to make it work. Hmm. Yeah. And, and, and now we've gone to the situation where, um, I mean, one of the, one of the projects that I, I was most proud of having been involved in over the last year, um, I was working, uh, I was helping out with the, the cloud.gov team. Um, they built a platform as a service using use Amazon Web Services as the base. And then we uh, took Pivotal Cloud Foundry open source and we built our own open source platform as a service using Cloud Foundry and, and some other stuff. Uh, and we that's actually now approved for government use. So uh, it, it used to take about eight to 12 months for a government service to go from being dev complete and ready to deploy to actually going live because it took that long to write a multi-hundred page system security plan that detailed how you implemented those controls. And then uh, you would have to get that tested. And, and now, because we can deploy stuff onto a platform as a service, you only need to care about, you know, 20 or so of those controls. It's much more, uh, much quicker to get stuff deployed. Our platform as a service is open source. We continuously deliver that. We're, we're making changes to that on a regular basis uh, using deployment pipelines. And so, you know, Part of the reason I, I did I did that work and I joined the federal government is so now I can say we did this in the federal government. What's your excuse? Yeah, which you know people don't like that very much. They think I'm kind of a dick, which I am. Um, <laughs> what, what are some of the most irrational excuses or you know explanations for why we're not you know embracing a DevOps culture or even some basic automation? I mean, you must hear it all. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and and. And I think there's there's a few things. Firstly, regulation. Uh, yeah. People say that you know we're regulated, and and the thing is, regulation is hard. I, I get that, um, and and I've dealt with that personally, so I, I felt that pain. I, I have a binder full of NIST documents, including the uh, four hundred something page NIST eight hundred fifty three 
which details all those different controls. So, so that's one thing, and, and it's hard, but it doesn't mean you can't do it. Um, and then the other thing is, you know, financial services, other things like that. Um, mainframes are a big one, but we know you can do this stuff on mainframes, and it, it's pretty cool. Sure. Um, and then the other one is often people say, well, our people aren't good enough, which I find really, it really winds me up that one when yeah. people are like, oh, our people aren't that great. I, I mean, one of my favorite quotes is from Adrian Cockcroft, um, who, uh, uh, as I'm sure you know, but for, for the listeners, he was um, head of uh, cloud architecture at Netflix. And, and these you know, senior executives at big companies would come up to him and say, Adrian, where do you get your amazing people from? And Adrian would turn around and say, I get them from you. Because guess what? <laughs> it's, it's not actually the people that are the problem. It's, you know, the, the, the problem is that the, the problem is stupidity from people, but it's not the people they're thinking of. Right. Because it's a management problem. Yeah. And it's really interesting. This is actually a management problem that you're trying to, you need to build a good system so that regular people can be successful in it. Right. And so they can learn. I mean, people want to hire in people with the right skills. And it's like, well, well actually, if you invested in developing the capabilities of your people, you wouldn't need to worry about all this. You know, people are like, well, we're losing people all the time. Well, why don't you invest in your people then? Yeah. They, they, they may be leaving for a reason. Right. So when you guys talk about a DevOps readiness assessment, what does that mean? So um, our assessment tool, we basically take those capabilities that we have discovered over the last uh, five years of doing state of DevOps report, the, the ones that we find actually predict IT performance, and we can measure your performance using some of the same questions that we use for the state of DevOps report. And we can compare you against the rest of the industry. We have obviously an enormous data set that we've gathered over the last four or five years. Uh, and we can also, there's, there's some clever magic um, that we can use to tell you for your particular company what you should invest in in order to get uh, the, the biggest bang for your buck. And I'll let Nicole talk about that because uh, she's knows much more about statistics than I do. <laughs> sure. So there's there's sort of a, a, a multi-step process here, right? So the first thing we do is we we help you measure how how well you're doing, right? So using kind of the magic of psychometrics is we help you uh, measure and assess how well you're doing. So you know, some, some customers that we've engaged with, that's the biggest value that they've seen, honestly, is it gives them a visibility into how well they're doing that visibility into their software engineering life cycle. Nice. Uh, yeah, exactly. That's been the best thing that they've had is a, a core understanding and a nice baseline into what they're doing. Um, and a way to, to see and compare how well they're doing and, and benchmark across their organization. So that's the first thing that we do. So this is less about measuring the apps out in the field than it is measuring the system that builds those apps. Exactly. And and like Jez said, it's really understanding and measuring the key capabilities that we know actually drive improvement. So it's not just measuring everything. It's measuring the things that we know are important. And so that's the first thing. Um, the next thing is benchmarking against the industry. So we can provide a benchmark um, against the against kind of your overall company average. We can also benchmark against the industry average. We can also benchmark against kind of your aspirational group, right? Your 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 high performers, which is interesting. But the research also shows that by having an understanding of what's possible, showing what you should be able to achieve actually really drives performance, hmm. right? There's a bunch of research out there showing you um, don't just arbitrarily set a goal state, but show a goal state that is achievable, right. really helps drive performance in an achievable, exciting way. So not to the peak, but to the next step from where you are. Well, a few, right? So you can have one for your company, one for your team, but also say like, here's uh, where the company, uh, typical company averages, here's where the industry averages, and then here's where the high performers in the industry are. So everyone can take a look and see what's possible. Um, and then the next thing we do is we can identify for you, like, so I guess let me take kind of a half step back. So many people come up to us at conferences or meetups, or, you know, occasionally people will, you know, recognize us and they'll say, where should we start? Mm -hmm. What's the most important thing? Right. You know, where, where what should we do? And the challenge is that absent of context, you know, if I don't know anything about you, 
The answer is always, it depends. Right. Yeah. Right. I, 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 I don't know, but I can't tell you. But if I have data with data, I can tell you where to start. I can identify for you what your constraints are. So with all of these capabilities, I can tell you about 2024 things that if you improve them, they will drive, uh, performance improvements in your ability to, uh, deliver software with both speed and stability. And that's key because that also drives your ability to, uh, contribute to the bottom line in your company. Absolutely. It's really hard to go back to your teams and say, Hey, work on 20 things at once. Yeah. <laughs> right? so you, want, you want to pick the one thing that's the most important. Mm. Exactly. Or three, right? Which three are the most important for me to focus on right now? And so once we have that data for your company, we can, we can point out, we can tell you what are the three or four most important things? What should you focus on now to move the needle? the fastest. Absolutely. Give me one second here to pay the bills because we've got to talk a little bit about our sponsor. This episode of .NET Rocks is made possible in part by Windows on the Google Cloud Platform. You may not know this, but the Google Cloud Platform supports Windows Server 2008, 2012, and 2016. It also supports SQL Server versions 2012, 2014, and 2016 standard web and enterprise editions with high availability. You can deploy your ASP.NET Windows apps to Compute Engine or your ASP.NET Core apps to App Engine or Container Engine. That's Google's hosted Kubernetes environment. .NET and .NET Core libraries are there for all 200-plus Google.com and cloud services in NuGet, led by John Skeet of Stack Overflow fame. But what about Visual Studio integration? Oh, it's there. You can use Visual Studio to manage your GCP resources and deploy your existing apps. You get stack driver logging, error reporting, and tracing support for .NET and .NET Core. PowerShell commandlets for GCP, which run on Windows and Linux. And a great set of partners to bring your Windows and .NET workloads to GCP, including Capgemini, Nudesic, and Magenic. So go to gcp.netrocks.com and get your free trial today. And you're listening to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. We're speaking with Jez Humble and Nicole Forsgren about DevOps readiness assessment. Do you find that there are few people at an organization typically who are big picture thinkers enough to to have the necessary comprehension about uh, about implementing a DevOps strategy? Because I find that most people are so buried in the minutia of their particular slice of what's going on, that and, and DevOps is such a holistic thing that uh, you really need to find those right people that have that big picture uh, thinking. Yeah, I mean, that, that's absolutely right. And I, I think that there's a couple of problems. Firstly, everything is very reactive. And, and actually, the, the more you need a DevOps transformation, the more reactive you're likely to be yeah. because you're dealing with um, all, all the kind of crap that's built up over the last however many years. Um, so it's kind of a, an unfortunate uh, self-reinforcing cycle of doom and despair. Um, so that there's that piece of it. You know, just, just being, being lost and, and not having any time to focus on it. And then the also, the, the other problem is also a symptom of the, the underlying issue that we're trying to address here, which is that, you know, people call us in. And I, I had this many times, you know, people call us in. And they say, well, we want to do continuous delivery and we do a value stream map and we discover that the problem is actually upstream in, you know, the whole budgeting and requirements gathering process. And I say, well, listen, we should really focus up here. And they say, well, that, that's not, we, we can't do anything about that. Mm. So, uh, let's <laughs> carry on and focus on the bit that we actually can do something about, uh, even though it's not a real problem. Um, so, so there's a lot of that. And I think what, what we really need and what we look for is people throughout the whole organization involved in helping with this. You need people at the executive level. You need people in middle management. You need people on the ground and you need them across all the different functional groups to work together. And that's often a tall order because um, there's so many priorities. It's, it's death by priority because yeah. everything is high priority. Nothing is high priority. Nothing gets done. Right. And so actually one of the difficult bits is getting people to focus on, okay, let's just focus on a very few priorities. And again, mm. that's something we can help with. We can say, well, listen, you know, these out of all these things that you could be doing, just don't bother with these other things. They're not actually going to move the needle. Uh, and assuming you can get all the right people in the room to agree on that uh, and then actually execute on it, then you, 
you can be in a, in a good space. But we have had very good feedback that we've been helpful in driving some of those discussions just by saying, listen, we've got the data um, and, and here's what it shows. And is there a common set of starting points? So do, you, do you see like this sort of three or four standard cases? We have four different types of capabilities. We have technical capabilities. We have process capabilities. We have culture capabilities. Um, and then we have feedback and measurement capabilities. And of the ones we've done so far, I, I would say that monitoring comes up pretty often. And also the technical capabilities come up pretty often as well. Um, things like continuous integration, test automation, uh, monitoring, that, that, those, those tend to come up quite a lot. I don't know, Nicole, is, is that your impression as well? Sure. And there's, and there is one process. There's one process capability that tends to show up, uh, relatively frequently that, that change approval, right? Automating of, of change approval processes because, (laughs) right? The cab, the cab is a thing that, that change approval board and having so many manual processes. But you know what? So I say that, but there have been one or two times where that, that didn't show up as a priority. So it showed that they were doing bad, that there was a financial services company we worked with and it showed they were doing badly, but it showed that it wasn't actually important that they invest in that compared to the other things. So it's good to be able to say to them, listen, your, your change approval process needs fixing, but actually it's not, it shouldn't be your highest priority. You need to do these other things first. Yeah. As someone who has actually read the State of DevOps report, I, I wanted to bring up a particular piece that I found fascinating, which was that the the progress to high performer has some serious bumps along the way. Well, I think that's true for everyone, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's there's that J curve where are are you familiar with the J curve? I guess some of our readers might not be. So yeah. imagine yeah, imagine a J, right? So imagine a J. Anytime you undergo any kind of performance improvement, you're going to have a little bit of an improvement and you get really excited. And then you're going to have a little bit of that fall. And you're like, no, no, no. And then, and then you're going to get better again. And it's going to be really, really exciting. And the larger the transformation you undergo, the bigger that jump is going to be, the bigger the J is going to be, which means the bigger the dip is going to be. So hopefully you're going to take a lot of small J's instead of one giant yeah. <laughs> J. Mm. Well, and and sort of aspect that I'm, I'm looking at here is and it's very common to increase the rate of change on your software as you try and move down this this DevOps practice. So where you may be doing a build once or twice a year, now you're trying to do one a month and you actually start failing more often. Yeah, no, that's true. That's one of the interesting things about our data is that it shows, you know, if you look at, we always split our respondents into three groups, a high-performing group, a medium-performing group, and a low-performing group. And that, that's not driven by us. That's actually the data falls naturally into those three buckets and has done for the last uh, four years that we've been doing this. And the high-performers are typically uh, releasing at least daily, and they can get changes out to production in the space of minutes or hours. Uh, and then the low-performers are typically releasing once every few months, uh, and it takes them... Uh, you know, weeks or months to get changes out, and then you've got people in the middle. But what's interesting is, you know, that the high performers have a much lower change fail rate than the low performers, mm-hmm. uh, which which means, you know, generally they don't need to roll back or push out emergency fixes. But in the middle, you've got this kind of weird bump. What we see is the medium performers actually have a worse change fail rate than the low performers. And what we believe to be the case is that as they try and move faster, they're coming up against a wall of technical debt. Um, mm. that's actually making it harder for them to get changes out. And so they, they, they're having to stop and address that, uh, and fix those underlying architectural problems and process problems before they can actually get in a safe place. Because, you know, if you're releasing once every six months and you try and take that process, that same process with that same software and try and release more often, what's going to happen is, is actually you're going to hit the wall unless you actually stop and address the underlying architectural and process issues that um, prevent you from releasing in a, in a much more low-risk way. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is now? Uh, it must be that happy time again. You got it, brother. It's time to schedule a meeting, to set a date for a meeting, where we can start to think about changing the approval process for scheduling meetings. Nice. I've been to those meetings. <laughs> it's actually time to give away a experience subscription from Developer Express to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. 
Become a UI superhero with DevExpress UI controls and libraries and deliver elegant .NET solutions that address customer needs today and leverage your existing knowledge to build next-generation touch-enabled solutions for tomorrow. Whether it's an Office-inspired application or a data-centric analytics dashboard, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best without limits or compromise. Learn more and download your free 30-day trial at devexpress.com slash superhero. So who's our winner, buddy? Today's winner is Chris Joseph Clark. All right. Congratulations, Chris. Golf clap for Golf you. Golf clap sir. for Chris. Got the clappers today. Nice. And uh, Chris just won Woo! the DX. Yeah. Chris just won the D experience subscription from developer express a big pile of awesome from them just for being a member of the dotnet rocks fan club. And if you don't know what that is, go to dotnet rocks.com, click on the big get free stuff button, answer a few questions and join the fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world and every show. We like to give away stuff from our sponsors and every December we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. And you got to sign up to win. And Nicole, it's your turn. If you had $5,000 to spend on technology today, what do you think you would buy? I would get a few things. I would probably get a new laptop. Mm. I would also get um, a Surface Pro mm. for the for the writing ability and the scribbling. Theo yeah. Schlossnagel showed me his and I fell in love. And I would also get Dragon, um, the ability to speak and have it uh, convert all of my my words to writing would be fantastic. Well, you know, that's built right into Windows, too. Or is dra- you like Dragon better? I like Dragon better. Yeah. Dragon's the original, man. Mm-hmm. I, I had the ISA 8-bit board for the IBM PC back in <laughs> a million billion years ago. <laughs> nice age. Yeah. that's uh, But yeah, Nuance owns the Dragon boards these days. Yeah. How about you, Jazz? What would you do with five grand? What would I do with five grand? Um, I, I would get... A uh, one of those little PC chips on a on a board, and I, I saw someone make a hot air balloon and put it nearly up into space with like a Raspberry Pi. Yeah, nice. And then send it back down again. I yeah. think that's really cool. My kids are probably old enough to handle helium uh, <laughs> legally, and uh, that's what I want to do. <laughs> Yeah, you'll spend more on the balloon than you will in the Raspberry Pi. They're like thirty dollars, but uh, that's, that's but right. a high altitude balloon that'll cost you some money. Yeah, helium is expensive. Yes, plus you got to get a tracking device so that you can find it when it lands. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's good stuff. And I've I've seen some of the videos that are out there. That's a lot of fun, and kids especially dig that stuff so much. Hey, let's do this little science project. Send a balloon up to space and then go find it. Yeah. That's yeah, a cool idea. Yeah. Any Anytime we can get our kids engaged in technology, I'm all over it. Totally. I'm really looking forward to that now. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm smitten with it. I think I'm going to go start pricing some of those pieces out. I think that's a great idea. Yeah. I think the important part of looking at that low performer to medium performer to high performer part is also it's I, I don't know that you necessarily like you talk about change fail rate as like impacting service. I'm wondering if you continue to have problems because you're building software faster and testing it faster, but it's just no longer impacting service because you get better at recovery. Yeah, I think that that's what we're looking to get people to be able to do is actually, it doesn't matter if you break things, if you can restore service really quickly. Right. Um, and that that's, that's the key capability. Once you accept that failure is inevitable, the question becomes, how quickly can we find and fix that problem? And, and that's one of the things that working in small batches enables that the things the thing that has really been reinforced to me over years of doing this and talking about it is the the importance of working in small batches like if you're making very small changes few lines of code single configuration change and you're taking those all the way through to production with every change becomes so much easier to find and fix the problems um, you know, at the beginning, you were talking about code review, and it's the same thing with code review. Right. Um, if you have to code review, you know, five pages worth of, of change, your answer is going to be, well, I think your white space is wrong. Um, <laughs> yeah, because you're just overwhelmed. <laughs> right. And if you're reviewing like a few lines of code change, it becomes much easier to reason about it. And it becomes sure. much easier, honestly, to, to approve it and to say, yeah, this is fine. Um, the reason people are often overwhelmed and, and, and that, that, that question at the beginning highlighted this, you know, our senior people are really overwhelmed, but it's because they've got a massive backlog of 10 pages 
10 okay. page uh, changes that they're supposed to review you know if we broke it into small batches it, w- it would be so much easier and i think that is generally applicable to everything whether it's product development making changes to your software organizational mm. transformation yeah. that's the key skill i look for in developers how do you take a big thing and split it up into lots of much smaller things that get you some of the way there and so this is the role of automation is so that you can validate those small changes quickly enough that it's that's not an impediment either Right. And, and so that it becomes economic to actually be able to do that. I mean, the mm-hmm. reason we put things into these big batches is because it's so expensive to make any kind of change. It doesn't make sense to work in small batches. Right. And so, I mean, because from an operations perspective, and I can put that hat on very happily, you know, change is good. You go first, <laughs> right? Like the way yeah. I kept my system stable is by not letting people change it. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that that's absolutely right. Um, and I, I think, you know, what, what, Going from that mindset to working in small batches, as Nicole says, is, is genuinely hard. It's, right. uh, it's a very different style of working. Right. And you need to think differently about architecture and process and, um, and everything from budgeting, governance, all these things have to change. Um, and so doing that in a small incremental way, uh, is the hard part. Yeah. And, and take, and it's got to take some time. How, speaking of time, I mean, how long do you see the typical organization start to really see benefit and, and evolve once they jump on board? Is it, does it happen fast or is this a slow process? I think the answer is always, it depends, right? Right. I think the, I mean, the initial transformation can be difficult, you know, moving from one release a year to two releases a year to three to four releases a year. Um, that initial transformation, you know, uh, what, when Nordstrom did it, it took them initial, an initial year or two, but we worked with, uh, Capital One, uh, with the Dora assessment and they were able to see really, really fast turnaround and, and value really, really quickly. Hmm. Right. Um, we pointed them to, um, two capabilities that were going to be really impactful. And in just two months time, they saw a 20 X increase in release rate in just like i said in two months time a 20x release improvement with zero increase in incidents jeez this part of this about picking the right project like should you start small or something greenfield perhaps so so what was interesting about capital one was they had teams who were already doing this stuff Mm -hmm. but um what, what they found is and this is true of all big organizations you know, the future is here. It's just not evenly distributed. Yes. You go into any big company, there's teams who are doing really cool stuff and there's teams who are, who are stuck in the mud. And, you know, it's often not their, their fault. It's just, um, you know, they find themselves in a particular context, in a particular situation. So what was interesting about that Capital One case study, and by the way, that case study is on our site. You can download it, uh, devops-research.com. Um, they had some teams who were doing trunk-based development, um, but there was a, there was a whole bunch of teams who weren't. And so, one of the techniques they used is to just, they, they held these uh, workshops where people can learn from each other and help each other out. And I think, you know, that that's a big piece of DevOps is, is finding the parts of your organization that are doing cool stuff and, and making that transparent and then having those people work together with other people to help them try those things and, and find ways to overcome the obstacles themselves. I mean, well, one of the reasons that I was so excited to work with Nicole on this is, you know, people bring me into organizations and they, they want me to tell them what to do. And, and my answer is, as Nicole said, you know, A, I don't know because I don't know enough about your context, but also you should not look for solutions outside your walls. The, the only way to deliver lasting change is if you actually solve the problems yourself. And if you look around, you'll probably find people who've already solved them. Interesting. Um, so, so that, that is the cool thing when, when you can actually say, well, listen, go and, go and talk to people. Here are the things you need to be looking at. Go and find people in your organization who are already doing some of this stuff. Talk to them, work together with them, and 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 help each other out. You know, I've had that experience on more than one occasion as a performance tuner, being brought in as the you know expert for hire to make a website go faster. And it it's not like the folks internally didn't know they need to make the site faster and weren't trying, and and were probably even doing the right things, but they didn't know how to measure it well enough to get it implemented across the board. And so most of the time I always do is help them with a measurement system, then actually use their ideas to show we were making things faster, and then they get that implemented wider. Yeah. 
So same thing with DevOps, right? There are people with good ideas inside of the organization. They just have to be able to surface it well enough. Yeah, absolutely. Does the product stack matter much here? I mean, I got to imagine you guys are, this is a .NET oriented show, but I got to imagine you've worked with all kinds of different things. Like what about containers? Like, is there any key tech? You know, we've looked at that. We've looked at um, containers. We've looked at Greenfield. We've looked at legacy. And the interesting thing is that we have found that the underlying architecture uh, doesn't matter as long as you follow key principles. Hmm like having a loosely coupled architecture, um, having teams that can make decisions independently of other teams. So <laughs> once again, as Jez sort of alluded to earlier, uh, you don't have excuses, right? As long as you follow some good core principles, you can, <laughs> you yeah. can do the DevOps. You can make good things happen regardless of the underlying technology that you're using. Hmm. Now, there are some that will be a little more difficult. Yeah, and again, Absolutely. you get in, you get into those regulated environments where th- a lot of this stuff has got more process wrapped around it. You, I mean, you have process wrapped around it, and there are some things that are a little more difficult. But take a look at you know Gary Groover and his team at HP. You know, mm-hmm. he made amazing things happen with on firmware. You know, he, and there's an amazing case study out there with what he was able to do on it was the HP LaserJet firmware case. They did it on firmware. If someone can can make mass transformation and automation and and great things happen on firmware you can make this happen on legacy systems you can make this happen on mainframes you can make this happen on on any technology that you're working on if you follow good practices and i believe actually that that firmware case study that was net so that was um the hp laserjet firmware case study they, they moved from c to using um dot uh, net uh, embedded i think for that project wow. so uh yeah you can you can do it with anything i, mm-hmm. I think the, the thing is there's always a way to get better yeah you, you don't have to be amazon uh and no one's expecting people to go from nothing to amazon and frankly it took amazon four years to get from where they were to being amazon yeah. they did this massive re-architecture that took them four years from 20 2001 to 2005 to, to re-architect to doing what they're doing. I mean, that was a, a four-year transformation um, where they completely re-architected. So, yeah. you know, no one has it easy. This idea that, oh, you know, these people are magical and, and, and special. No, they're not. They, they just rolled up their sleeves and invested the time and effort to, to do it. And, and anyone can do that. Anyone can get better. You always focused on, or when I first knew of you, Jez, you were focused on the continuous delivery side of things. And, uh, and I think, and I made a great book about it, as I recall, and, and certainly still have the website too. Um, Thank you. Do you see that as more as a developer oriented story when you talk continuous delivery? Yeah. I mean, uh, I was a developer when I was writing it, uh, and my target audience was developers. But I think what, what I found pretty quickly is that a lot of the obstacles were not engineering obstacles, uh, which was actually what led me to write my second book, um, Lean Enterprise. You know, I go into places and say, well, you know, and, and the developers, exactly as you say, you know, the developers knew what needed to be done. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was all these other obstacles in the way that were yeah. cultural or organizational or architectural. Um, so yeah, I mean, the, the stuff in continuous delivery, I mean, that, that, that book to my great surprise and delight has aged really well. It's selling as well today as it, it sold, um, when it was first released in, in, in 2010, because the principles and the practices in it, still absolutely valid and frankly we didn't invent those those are things that have you know as i've looked at the history of what we're doing those were talked about in xp by kent beck and, and the people who came up with xp and you know a lot of it owes its history to you know the, the way unix was designed uh, and you know a lot of that went into the way that windows nt and, and subsequent systems were designed um so this is you know that this is not new stuff but the, a lot of the obstacles are, are non-technical do you subscribe to the idea this all feeds back to to the Toyota way even, and uh, and Deming's sort of uh, manufacturing during World War Two? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think you know this goes back a very long way. One of the things I like to talk about is uh, before Toyota was Toyota, they were Toyota, which was the family name, um, and they right. were building automatic looms. Um, and the key 
the key innovation in their breakthrough products, the Toyota Automatic Loom Type G back in, I think, uh, 1927 or so, was that the system would automatically detect problems and tell the user and, and, and shut down. So rather than, you know, if a thread broke or there was some kind of problem, rather than continuing to, to try and weave defective product, it would stop. And then, and then, you know, the, the user, the person operating the loom could then fix the problem. That, that caused many improvements in efficiency, not least the fact that instead of having one operator per loom, you could now have one operator in charge of a whole room of looms. We have that exact analogous process in software delivery. That's continuous integration. Mm-hmm. It's being able to s- detect whenever a problem occurs uh, so that we can fix it straight away rather than allowing defective products to, to go downstream. So this idea, you know, this really struck a, uh, it, it, it caused an epiphany for me. You know, this is, this, none of this stuff is new inventions. These are old ideas. We've just found new ways to, to implement them, but the fundamental principles are the same. It's about building quality into what we're doing, building uh, comprehensive and fast feedback loops to tell us whether what we're doing is good quality, where quality could be, you know, not just the absence of defects, but are we actually producing something valuable? How do we get that information as fast as possible so that we can act on it? Uh, and, and to get it as fast as possible, how do we narrow the scope of what we're doing so that we don't have to deliver an enormous batch of stuff before we can get that feedback? Right. Yeah. Early and often. <laughs> That's it. Yeah, it's pretty funny. Uh, you said this right off the bat, and maybe we haven't emphasized this enough, but it seems to be this is a management issue more than anything else. So you're talking about loosely coupled architectures and so forth, but if management gives the team's room to actually create effectively, all of the rest of it will simply come about. Yeah, that's right. I think a big piece of this is empowering teams. Uh, that's that's actually a very difficult thing to do. Uh, uh, both Nicole and I uh, have, have have seen that in our work where, you know, some senior person will say, you know, we empower you. Um, but actually they don't. I mean, just, just telling someone that they should be empowered isn't the same as actually empowering people. Right. Um, Beate Bogsnes has this nice saying. He's one of the, um, people who's instrumental in the beyond budgeting movement. He says, you can't remove command and control through command and control. Um, <laughs> telling people, you, know, you, you are now empowered. Okay, so what shall I do next? Um, one of my favorite books that I've read over the last uh, few few years is, this is uh, one of Turn my the Ship Around by, by uh, L. David uh, Marquette. Uh, he, he talks about, he, he's a submarine commander who implemented um, delegation of responsibility um, in the U.S. Navy uh, and talking about how he did that. And it, it's extremely hard. It's extremely hard. Most of the lessons of management um one of my favorite books on management is um, The Human Side of Enterprise by McGregor. And he talks about theory X and theory Y. That book came out in the 60s. We're still, we're still not actually able to, to, to achieve that uh, theory Y culture in a lot of organizations today. Yeah, these are not new problems. They're just being applied in a new way. And in some ways, I feel like it's just that software's now become so critical that we're, we're actually having to be efficient. <laughs> Yeah, you know, as long as software was sort of on the periphery of every organization, you could afford a and you could fair and, and had such huge returns. You could afford a high failure rate, and you could afford it to sort of be on the periphery. Now that it's critical to every business, it kind of has to grow up. Yeah, it's so true, and it's so funny that you say that it's critical to every business. I mean, they're even finding farmers downloading rogue firmware for their tractors from the Ukraine, right? <laughs> I mean, software really is at the heart of every business now. It, that is a great story. Yeah. And the issue, it's John Deere has bought software from a third party to drive their tractors. And part of that agreement, the software is completely locked down. Yep. You can't make any changes to it. Can't There's touch all it. kinds of restrictions. So people are hacking their tractors, right? Yeah. And voiding their warranties and all that just because they can't afford to have a technician come out and install, quote unquote, the new system. It's pretty funny. And, and, and they're, they're moving to this, this service model where actually, you know, the farmers don't really own the tractor anymore. They're basically being, being leased it effectively, even though it might look like they own it. Um, you know, it's kind of similar to what GE have done with their, um, engines for, for airplanes, where they actually kind of own them and service them over the life cycle. It's this kind of weird centralization of control over everything, which I kind of think culturally is, is, is problematic. Yeah. Well, it's the opposite of empowerment, isn't it? Yeah. 
Right. That's right. And you, you see this with Apple. I think there's a lawsuit going on somewhere in the Midwest right now about, you know, whether it's whether companies are allowed to deny you the ability to repay your own stuff. Yeah. Um, and, and that I think that's kind of toxic. Um, you know, I certainly learned and, you know, I think all of us probably learned computers in an age where we knew what every memory location in our computer did yeah. and where we could get in with a screwdriver and, and change stuff out. Yep. Um, and that's critical to learning about this. So, you know, one of the big changes macroeconomically I'm seeing is, you know, the splitting of the world into people who are, you know, elite experts in this stuff and, and everyone else. And I, I see this as accelerating that. And I don't think it's a good thing. I think there's a backlash in the millennial generation um, towards understanding things uh, from the past that uh, the current working generation sort of discarded 10, 20 years ago. Tape decks, record players, radios, that kind of thing. I think I think there's a, a huge upswing. Maybe it's the maker uh, movement that started it, but but I know several kids that are really into tinkering with electronics now because it's a frontier for them. Nobody's doing it. Repairable technology. Maybe that's a thing because yeah. so much of technology now is disposable. Yep. Well, uh, I think that's a good place to leave it. Guys, thank you very much for uh, joining us uh, this hour talking about DevOps and uh, good luck to you both in your future endeavors. Thank you so much. Thanks very much for having us. All right. Jazz Humble, Nicole Forsgren, we're talking to us today about DevOps readiness assessment. Great show. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a